I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world that ours is not a loving God and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Good day, good people. This is Brad King. You are listening to the Downtown Riders Jam podcast. It's day 32 from the bunker during the Corona apocalypse. I hope you are all well. So I'm really excited about today because I've been wanting to interview Janelle Brown on this show for a long time. She's a friend. I've known her for a long time. I've seen her career go through two different amazing trajectories, and she has a new book coming out, um, and you'll hear about that. We are going to host a virtual reading for her. Um, uh, Not a reading, it's a book club. So I will be very soon putting up an Eventbrite. We're going to take 15 people, um, and I'm going to randomly select five of you and buy you her book. The other 10, you will buy it yourself. Um, and in about five or six weeks, we're going to get together on Zoom. We're going to have cocktails, and we're going to talk about the book. Uh, so you can meet Janelle and talk to her, and that'll be fun. So there'll be details about that on the site. A really good way to get them is to go to thebradking.com, sign up for my newsletter, be all kinds of literary stuff that's going on around. Also, uh, you can buy her book. There's, I have a bookshop right there on the site. Um, goes to independent bookstores, goes to bookshop.org. So you can support local and independent bookstores by buying her book through there since Amazon has deprioritized um, sending books out. This is a good way to make sure there are still bookstores in your neighborhood. And as always, you should go leave a review at uh, Apple or wherever it is that you're listening to this. So 
here's the thing you don't know about how I do this show. But normally, I will make notes about this introduction. It may not sound like it, but I plan this stuff out. So I'll make notes about what I want to talk about based on the interview and what's going on in the day and whatever. And I wrote nothing down for Janelle because I don't need to. Because I've known what I wanted to say about this. Um, And we talk a little bit about it on the show today. But it's also worth saying here at the beginning. So what you may not know about Janelle is that she worked at Wired a long time ago, before me, I think around 95, 96, and moved over to Wired News, was hot-wired then in Wired News, and sort of cut her teeth writing about technology and in this sort of nascent days of like web journalism. And she left there, and she went to Salon, which at the time was like the first big American internet online magazine. They did long-form pieces, 7,000-word, you know, tomes, right? It's like the New Yorker. And that was the aesthetic, right, that they were going to be the thought leaders for this world. So I show up to Wired in 98, 99. So she's been at Salon. She gets there right about, I think she left Wired in 98. So, like, we just missed each other. So I'm a young kid, you know, doing this stuff. We're about the same age, but like I like I sort of come in three or four years into this web thing, which at the time was, you know, Janelle was a veteran and I was just some kid that showed up. And her work, she was like the must-read internet writer at the time. Like she gave a gravitas to these things that we were writing about. And it's hard to remember now, or if you're young, it's not a thing you even knew existed. But people didn't take the web seriously. People didn't take digital things seriously, even as the dot-com boom was happening, right? And there was a lot of huckster, fraudulent stuff going on there. But this sort of brick-and-mortar physical world, and in the media particularly, just pushed aside any digital stuff. We were childish and it didn't matter. It was even worse because we were in on the West Coast, right? So publishing is out of New York, right? Like publishing is an East Coast thing. And now there are these crazy people on the on the West Coast who are doing this digital thing and, you know, talking about all that stuff. And and she was really more than anybody else the sort of champion of that. And not that digital culture is like is beyond reproach, but she was just approaching it with a smart eye and a beautiful talent and was able to, I used to tell people like Salon and Janelle gave credence to the work that we did at Wired because we could always point to that as our New Yorker. Like you think what we're doing is short firm or vacuous or whatever. Well, go read Salon, right? So, you know, of course, we hated her because she was so good at what she did and she was doing things that we all wanted to do. We joke about it today. Like, um, we didn't really hate her, but it was just one of those like, ah, damn, like she's really good at what she does. And I'm glad she's on our side in this, but also like, I wish I could, you know, I wish I had that kind of talent, which we just, I, we just didn't. We just didn't. It's not a thing that we had. So it was great. Like, that's how I knew her is as that person. So when she transitioned into into novel writing, and I just found this out when we talked, um, I didn't know that's what she wanted to do. And I just thought, man, this is, a, this is a bad idea. Like, you're sort of the queen of this internet writing stuff, and 
you're going to go write books, fiction? Like, that seems like a bad idea. But also, like, now at 48, I look at the trajectory of my career, and I'm like, oh, yeah, that's what you do, right? Like, you sort of... Because very few people ended up in that space on purpose. Like, you went there because you could be young, you could make a lot of money, and you could write. And you were writing about this sort of change of culture, like... You're in your 20s, like that's the ideal job. I told people for years and years and years. I was an editor and run, like when I was, I think I was 32 and I was running and, and helping build the online presence of Technology Review, which is the oldest technology magazine in the country. At 32, that was a ridiculous thing. Like, had the web not come along, that's not an opportunity I would have had, not just because there wouldn't have been a web, but because at 32, that wouldn't have been a position I could have gotten. So when she did that, again, was ahead of the curve and, and things that a lot of us did, you know, the sort of writers of that time who got to a certain point and were like, oh, we need to go do something else and the only way to do that is to restart. And unlike Janelle, when most of us restarted, we never achieved the kind of fame and the kind of success and the kind of sort of gravitas in the second phase of her writing career that we did in the first part. And so watching her career, that her fourth book is coming out, Watch Me Disappear was her third book, which was, I mean, I just tell people, I, I hate her. The, the, the last page of the book is the best page, the best last page of any book ever, ever. You read the book, and then the last page, suddenly you realize you were reading a different book. Uh, and pff, I mean, how amazing, right? Like, how amazing is that? So I'm really stoked that her fourth book is coming out. And before the book is even out, Nicole Kidman's company options the book and it's going to be on Amazon Prime and now she's writing the pilot for that. So it's just... Uh, uh, I've known her too long to be starstruck by her, right? Like, she's just Janelle and we were all kids back then. But it's been such a pleasure and so fun to be able to sit sort of not even closely on the sidelines, but, you know, in the stands watching what she does and uh, being involved in a very sort of external way uh, because she's great. And I love her characters and I love the stories that she tells. And it's, it's just as a writer, it is amazing to me that she both achieved a level of success and notoriety as somebody who wrote these long-form, smart journalism pieces and also is finding success writing novels about complex women because these two worlds are not the same. She will, I think, may disagree with me on that, as you'll hear, Um but it speaks to her talent because she's able to use her skill and what the output is is not irrelevant, but it almost doesn't matter. I can't write fiction. She has this talent and she can apply it into these places. Journalism, essay writing, novels. Um, you know, and it's amazing. And so getting it, uh, getting to talk to somebody who I believe her books are, are, and the, this is what I, you know, I've told people like Fitzgerald, who's my guy, 
like takes on New York, takes on the sort of twenties and this sort of upper class culture. And Janelle does that same thing for Silicon Valley and this sort of hustle culture. And I really, really, truly believe that when it's all said and done, when she's written the next however many books that she writes, if she stays in that area, which I imagine she will, she's going to be one of those people that is a voice of a very specific part of a generation. It's unfortunate for her that it's Gen X because nobody gives a shit about us, but it just feels that way looking at the progress that she's made in the stories and looking at the ways in which she takes on things. So I'm really excited to have her on today. Uh, I don't think I fall in too much, but there's probably a little bit of that. Um, and I'm excited for you to hear this. So without further ado, let me introduce you to Janelle Brown. So I'm not going to start this the way I've been starting everybody else's, although we'll get to it because I was sitting at home the other day. I don't know whether you posted it or whether I just saw it. Like this book got is being made into a Amazon show. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes. That's amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Do you want me to tell you what's going on? Yeah, no. Yeah. Yes. Uh, basically, before um, you know, the, the book's coming out next week. But last fall, um, it started circulating around Hollywood, and um, and I started getting offers from studios, and there was a bidding war. Oh my! And God. Um, yeah, I had offers from from uh, I think it was nine different studios and producers and stuff. And uh, yeah, the one I ended up going with was um, Nicole, Nicole Kidsman Production Company. It's called Blossom Films. Um, they made little, Big Little Lies. They've got a, a show called The Undoing that's coming out on HBO soon. They're doing a bunch of good stuff. Um, anyway, she has a production company with a deal with Amazon. And so Amazon optioned it for her production company. And uh, she's going to take a role in the, in the, finish, in the finished show. That's a, and I have to, I have to write a pilot. <laughs> that's what I, so you're actually writing, are you going to, are you like, are you the show? Like, what are you doing with this thing? Uh, I am, I am writing the pilot. I'm going to be involved in the show as a writer. Um, I'm not the show runner. That's kind of a, a different, a different yeah. beast that I'm not ready to become. <laughs> um, but we have uh, some really experienced people who we're working with. Reed Morano is going to direct it, which I'm really excited about. She's this really amazing female director who, uh, won a bunch of Emmys for The Handmaid's Tale. That was first season was her. That's um, amazing. And yeah, so it's exciting. How much are you freaking out? Uh, you pass? know, <laughs> I feel like I feel like I've been I've had waves of freak out. There was the first wave of freak out when it was all going down, and then there was the second wave of freak out when when I actually signed the deal. And then there's another wave of freak out when, you know, they finally announced it, which took a while for them to announce it. I've actually known for some time. Yeah. But they had to like dot the I's and cross the T's on everyone's deals before they, before sure. they announced it. So, yeah. Um, it's weird yeah. to be at the point in my life where when I go look at the news, like when I'm reading Variety or Deadline or places like that, it's not that unoften that I'm like, holy shit, like 
that's my friend. Like, how did this happen? Like, why am I getting a news alert about this on my phone? Uh, right. That's amazing. Yeah, it's funny. I got I got a, got a text from a friend at nine o'clock in the morning the day that the news release came out saying, oh my God, and the link to deadline. I'm like, oh, I didn't even know they were announcing it today. So I jumped up and my phone and my inbox were just like, Oh, I'm sure. Know, flooded, flooded with emails. So. Well, I'm glad we scheduled this months ago then. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, now I'm going to ask you what I have been asking everybody else now that that is out of the way. Um, how are you guys? How is it out there? How is it for you guys? Like, well, you know, Los Angeles, we, we got locked down really early. I've been in quarantine, basically, or lockdown, whatever you want to call it, for um, four weeks and three days now. Um, <laughs> not that I'm counting, <laughs> but Gavin Newsom was on it really early. And so, and the, you know, the kids came out of school. And once the kids came out of school, we were like at home. So, you know, I know some friends who've had it, but it hasn't been the epidemic here the way it has been in like in New York. Um, so, um, we're just stuck at home real, real, uh, crazy trying to figure out how to navigate this whole new world where my husband and I are both working from home with two children, both who need to be homeschooled, you know, both of us in in the middle of kind of crazy intense stuff in our careers. So it's, it's how how old are your kids? Seven and 10. So what is that? That's what, fourth grade and first grade? Uh, fourth grade and second grade. Fourth grade and second grade. It's interesting. Yeah, which there is was- not, which is not the easiest age to like, it's, it's like, I'm glad they're not younger because it would be harder, but, um, you know, the 10 year old is fairly self-sufficient. The seven year old needs a lot of like handholding for this, for this homeschooling stuff. And, yeah. and even my daughter, like, you know, she's used to having her teacher there all day to like talk through things with, and she doesn't have that anymore. So if she's like working on a project. She doesn't understand it. Like, we're the ones that have to sit with her for hours on end. <laughs> so right. it's kind of hard to like, to like be writing while you're also trying to help your kid understand how to do the quadratic equations, you know? Right. Step one, remember what the hell a quadratic equation is. Yes, Step exactly. two, Google how you teach this. <laughs> uh, exactly. Yeah, my, my sister teaches fifth grade. And so on her end of things, it's like, she's like, you know, how do you wrangle 10 and 11 year olds online when, you know, when you have them physically in a space, you can, there are, we're taught methods to control the crowd, right? But when you get them in digital spaces, when they haven't seen each other and they're sort of away from social contact outside of their family, it's, I mean, it's hard, right? Like it's really difficult to like make that meaningful when you have three days to prepare. Yep. I know. My sister's a second grade teacher as well. And yeah, she's, She's trying to do that and homeschool her kids at the same time. Yeah. Too, so, yeah. yeah. It's, I, there was a woman on Twitter. I can't remember who it was, but uh, she was a blue check. So she had lots of followers. But she basically said, yeah, my son's in first grade. We're done with school. Like I sent a note. To yeah, I saw that. that. Yeah. I saw that. Yeah. And it's like, well, yeah, right. Of course. Like it's not that first grade is not important, but like. It's basically social emotional development stage where they're just right. half of the importance of being in school is like learning how to read and yeah. do basic like three plus two. And you can, you know, you can figure that out in your own home if you want yeah. to. The rest of the stuff they're not going to get because they can't hang out with kids. So, yeah. yeah, yeah, it's really I was like, yeah, that feels like the exact thing that I would do, which is like, yep, we're calling it a day. Like there's enough trauma going on for all the kids. Uh, mom and dad are trying to pay the bills. So... <laughs> Mm-hmm. We're going to be playing lots of computer games. Yeah. Um, yep. 
So, okay. So now we're going to go way back. So you're in LA now, but that, where are you from? I'm originally from San Francisco Bay area. Um, I grew up in a town called Atherton, which is in the suburbs of San Francisco, kind of near Stanford university. So you so are that's like, where you're like a unicorn. Like you're somebody from the Bay area who's from the Bay area. Yeah, exactly. I am actually a born and bred Californian. I not only grew up in the Bay Area, but my family is like some generations of Californians. Really? So they go back, we go back way back to like the gold rush. Wow. So do you have brothers and sisters? I do. I have a sister. She's a school teacher in Berkeley. Oh, that's right. So she, is she older or younger? Younger. Younger. Just like four years. So you're the, you're the, the grown kid. And what did your parents do? Um, my dad was a small businessman. Um, he had some, you know, technology adjacent industry companies when I was growing up, like computer related. And, uh, my mom was kind of a stay at home mom. She did some, some, uh, some projects and worked with my dad a little bit and she did some interior decorating, but mostly was a stay at home mom. Yeah. My mom was, my mom liked to say like she worked when she had to outside of their home, right? Like when we were like, oh, we don't have any money. Like mom's going to go back to work. Uh, And then when, when, as soon as we got over that hump, she was like, I am out of here. I'm going back home. So, um, and it's funny because I've known you for a long time, but I actually don't know any of the stuff that I'm about to ask you. So uh, (laughs) it feels weird to like, after 20 years, be like, oh yeah, right. This is like basic info. So what were you like growing up? Like, were you nerdy, writery in school, like athletic? Like- I was a total nerd. Um, I was, I was not, I was a socially awkward kid. I did not really, you know, I did not really like hang well with other children. <laughs> I, I was like a big kind of like book nerd and, and uh, smarty pants and, and uh, it took me a long time to kind of get my groove. I think when I was in high school, I kind of became an alterna, alterna girl. And I found, found some of my people that way. But uh, um, yeah, really, I kind of didn't hit my stride until I got to college. <laughs> yeah. And, and was your sister the same way or did she go the opposite? No, my sister was the opposite. She was so social butterfly. She was like uh, partying all the time in high school and like tons of friends, joined a sorority. She was like... She was, she was a, she was a social creature. It's really, I always find that stuff. Like my sister who's older went to conservatory for piano. So she was really quiet and like, didn't like gym class, like did this sort of theater thing, but she played the piano. So she didn't actually do any of the theater. She just sort of made the music for that. And I was like your sister. I was like, bucket, Mm -hmm. let's go. Like school comes later. We'll figure this stuff out. I don't know whether this is like an older or younger dynamic, but like, you just hear that a lot where the like older yeah. kid is like a little more serious than the younger one. Right. Yeah, are, you guys, I think. Are, are you guys friends now? Like if you guys, oh, yeah, totally. out, like, well, I mean, she lives, she lives in, Tar- in the Bay area and I live in Los Angeles. So it makes it a little harder to hang out, but yeah, we see each other when we can and we keep, we keep in touch for sure. Yeah. So four years, you guys were in the same, you guys were in the same building a lot. Uh, you know, I was a senior when she was a freshman in high school and then she, so, then she yeah. So. so just that, just, because my sister was yeah. five, so we were never in the same place at the same time. Um, yeah. We tell people, like, we're two uh, only children raised in the same house just because our experiences in life were so different because we just never did any of that stuff together. Mm-hmm. Uh, so your parents are, like, you're reading and writing and sort of being, and I'm assuming your parents are like, yes, this is, go do that. Like, when you went to college, were they? Um, you know, 
I would say they 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 knew that I liked to write and they certainly encouraged it. I think for a while there my they were concerned about the <laughs> idea of me wanting to be a writer when I grow up and my dad you know, for a while, it's like, maybe you should consider going and getting an MBA after school and, you know, or maybe a law degree. And, um, but then, you know, once I graduated into, into the dot-com boom and I got a job at Wired and then like clearly had a job in journalism, they, they were like, oh, okay, there's a viable way for you to be a writer. And, uh, I think when I quit, when I quit my job, it's not, so I was at Wired for what, three, four years. And then I was at Salon for another three or four. You get the job at um, Wired right out of college? Uh, yeah, basically, I I had a very, I had a very short lived job right after college. So basically, the summer after I graduated from college, working at the McKinley Group, which uh-huh. was a, do you remember this thing? I made a search engine called Magellan. Yeah. Um, which was bought by eventually bought by Excite, uh, which was a search engine that eventually went bankrupt. But um, but we we were going to um we were going to review the entire internet. So it was like a room full of post-grad kids, like sitting there surfing through these links and going to every single website in existence and reviewing it. Now this was like 1995. So there weren't that many websites yet. It seemed doable at the time. Um, And the vast, the vast majority of those websites were like, the um the NGP, the engineering school of a university right. that happened to have a website like no one had a website so it was like we're like let's review um Dartmouth's engineering school webpage right. and then <laughs> that's just net right like it was that yeah exactly we were we were so excited if we found Justin's links on that it was like you know like oh my god here's something that's actually interesting the vast majority of it was just like university websites so this um, is before Yahoo right. This is uh, right around that. Yeah, I think Yahoo basically killed, um, killed the Magellan search engine. So I'd worked there for a couple months and was frantically applying for any job I could find in journalism and get me out of that job. And I, I got a job at Hotwired, which was you know the uh, I don't know if people remember that now, but like Wired Magazine's website initially was called Hotwired, and it was like its own separate online magazine. And I got hired by Hotwired to work on their you know, editorial assistant in their um, World Beat section, which was like a travel section. Um, so it was like a travel magazine for Wired. And I got hired away by them. And that was my first, my first journalism job. And that working was, in the that was when they were, they were still owned by Wired Mag. That was before the split. Yeah, it was independent. Right? Yeah, we had, we were, we were all Wired was in a building and, uh, South Park and like one half building was was print, the other half was digital, and we were independent. Yeah, and that's so weird. I got like, by because I worked at the magazine in '98, and they had mm-hmm. already sold off the the. I went to the site. No, I, w- I was at the magazine in '90. Yeah, 98, 98 or 99, and then I went. I think it was '99 because I was there in '98. So okay, you, and you started right after me. Yeah, it must have been 99. And then I, but I was only there for like a short time. And then I moved over to the digital. But by that time, we were owned by, I don't even remember, we were owned by like four people, including a Spanish telecom at one point. And it was just like every time we had an all staff meeting, it's like, who, who owns us? Like, what's happening? <laughs> uh, they gave us free Spanish lessons. When the telecom bought us, the whole company got free Spanish lessons. 
That's cool. That's the one thing <laughs> I remember about that. So you go to Wired and that's because like when I went to college, my parents and every writer, right? Like every writer at that time in the sort of 90s, my parents were like, well, maybe you should get a teaching degree yeah. and then yeah, you can write in the summer, right? Exactly. And I always tell exactly. people, I'm like, my dad's brilliant move was like, teaching will be the money. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like now I'm like, well, that's as dumb as being a writer. <laughs> like, you don't make mm-hmm. any money doing that either. And you don't get to write. Yep. So you finished college. And where'd you go to college at? UC Berkeley. Okay. So God damn, I really did just follow in your wake. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so you get your degree, you do McKinley, you go to Wired. And how long are you, what's it like at Wired in 1995, 96? I mean, it was crazy back then. Um, it was kind of a, I felt like a brave new world for sure. It was like, we just couldn't hire fast enough. There was, everyone felt like you were, you felt like you were inventing something, which was pretty exciting. Like a whole new form of journalism. We were the, we were like the biggest by far and kind of only quote unquote real as in had funding um, online magazine at that point. Um, and so we were like, what do we do? And every day was a kind of an exciting new thing. And, um, and it was like also startup in the tech industry in 95, which, you know, was the beginning of that whole era. And it was, it was exciting. We worked our butts off. <laughs> yeah. It was, yeah. This show, I started doing this, a version of this show in 2000 at dot com. We had a, when they moved, when they sold, we were in that other building and there was a uh-huh. radio, there was like a recording studio in the back of this building. And so literally Jeremy Barna, who is now, he was our producer, he passed away. But he and I just went back in there and we were like, well, let's just do an audio show like once a week where we just interview mm-hmm. whoever we want to, like not about technology, just like get them on the phone for a half hour. And literally we would just post it and like nobody ever said anything about it. Like nobody ever told <laughs> us not to do it. Nobody said like, what are you guys doing? And like, why are you talking to Grandmaster Flash about yeah. not technology? Like it's hard to explain that time to people where you're just like, yeah, fuck it. We're just going to do this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, exactly. Exactly. It was and like, we were kids. You got an idea? You got an idea? Go for it. Yeah, we were all like 22. <laughs> yeah. Like, and, and like there was literally no adult steering, or the adults were like in their early 30s and they didn't. Know yeah, exactly. Right? Like, <laughs> exactly. It was really amazing. So, you, but you didn't want to do, did you want to do tech reporting or is that just like you ended up there? Because I just ended up there. I, you know, I, I got hired at Wired initially to do, like I said, this, um, this, uh, travel like travel yeah. and then and then at some point they decided to shutter the travel section and that's and so what they were doing at wired is like just constantly reshuffling people so when they decided that something wasn't working they wouldn't they wouldn't fire the, the people doing that thing they would be like okay here we've got this talent like let's just hang on to them until we figure the next thing and so what happened is that you know when the travel section got shut like they shut that down because they didn't think it was working they were just launching Wired News and they needed reporters. So I got kind of reassigned to Wired News, which was like a tech news, you know, you know. Um, right. <laughs> so, so they're like, great, you're reporting about internet culture now. And I'm like, okay, great, I am. And so that's how I, by what, 90, 97, I guess that was, was when yeah. Wired News launched. And so that's when um, I suddenly became a tech news reporter. It's so, I did that for years. <laughs> so I've now interviewed several people from the, like Julia Shears and Elisa Batista, mm-hmm. and AP and like several folks that have gone, like you have gone on to like have 
interesting writing careers. And other than me, none of them had a background in technology nor wanted to do any, like they were just like, well, I just ended up there. And so it was really exciting. And I, like, I had been on the internet since 1984. I had been surfing BBSs. Like I talked to Howard Rheingold on the well when I was like 13 yeah. years old, right? <laughs> so when I showed up to Wired, I was like, oh my God, it's Mecca. Like I have, I have come to the mountain. And then talking to like mm-hmm. all these other folks I worked with who were like, eh, you know, like it was yeah. the job that I got. <laughs> so I did yeah. it. Um, but you took to it. Like, yeah, you know, it was it Like was you made a name for yourself fast. I, I, I did, I guess, you know, it's, I think, I think in part because, you know, I've, I'd been there since the early days. Um, there I kind of established you know, I knew people and then, and I don't know if that had anything to do with anything, but like, you know, I, I, I was one of the few, I was one of the few writers who was writing about internet culture, like actually like on a day-to-day basis, like looking at like what is going on on the internet, what is culture on the internet, how is it affecting our world, how does it affect the way we consume music, art, you know, film, you know, the way we interact with each other. And I think there are people who were hungry for that kind of, of content and there just wasn't that many people, there weren't that many people who were writing about it. So, you know, it was pretty easy to very quickly establish a name for myself because I was doing it and I had some legitimacy because I've been working at Wired since 95 and which, you know, it was only two years, two or three years at that point, but right. it was a lot longer than anyone else had been doing right. it. So, it was uh, the entirety of the web's existence. Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. Um, I was a veteran. So. But you're not giving yourself enough credit because there were lots of people that were writing about it. And like, not necessarily on commercial places, but like people were, but you're a really good writer. Like you weren't oh, just... Thank you. Um, like it wasn't like you were just like, this is what's happening. Um, mm-hmm. and like, I knew you, like, I knew you a little bit from Wired, um, but, but I really, like, I know you mostly from Salon, right? right? Like when you, when did yeah. you move from Wired News to Salon? Uh, 98, end of 98. Right. So, and this, I told people this back, I remember telling people this back then, like I would be on panels at South by or just wherever. And I used to tell people Salon was the place that gave what we did at Wired News legitimacy because Salon was like a magazine and Wired yeah, News exactly. was like a newspaper. And the exactly. writing that was going on there was that sort of long form, beautiful, gravitas. It was magazine. Yeah. yeah. It was like the, the model was like, you know, the New Yorker. It was, it was right. not, it was not, um, you know the tabloid and it later became much more of a tabloid right, right. kind of after part of basically around the time that I started to leave, I left like yeah. kind of when, turned a corner, but the early stuff. days of salon, like, you know, we had a, a publishing schedule, which was much more like a magazine publishing yeah. schedule. And, and, you know, you would write five, six, 7,000 word pieces for them. Mm-hmm. Later, later things shifted in part because that model wasn't really working well on the internet. But um, we had became, we become more, more webby. Um, and then there was a lot more like short and long, but you know, for, for certainly during the period that I was there, like the aspirations were really high and it was yeah. like we were encouraged to really write long, well-researched think pieces. Yeah. Um, and it was the thing that, um, it, it was, I, I, it was the thing that gave legitimacy to writing on the web. Like for all the stuff that we did at Wired yeah. and for all of the sort of, 
I, I don't know what your numbers were, but like, I know there would be days that I would write something and a million people would read it at Wired News. And I don't know what Salon's traffic was like, but I promise you, even if it was less than that, more people would know what you wrote than what I wrote because it yeah. would be talked about, right? Like it's like the New Yorker. Nobody actually reads the New Yorker. Everybody gets it, but like four people read the long <laughs> articles. But then it becomes the sort of zeitgeist of how you talked about stuff. And right. Um, so it wasn't just that you were there at, at 95 because there was a lot of people doing that. Um, right. Your right. writing was always, it was always really good. And one of those things that like John Borland and like, I would hang out with all the newsy people. We were always like, ah, fuck her. God, it's so good. Like, why really? like, you could, Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We were reviled because you were so good and we were all jealous. Right? Oh my God. I had like, no idea. Thank like you. good nature reviled. <laughs> not, not obviously. Like, ah, shit. Like, um, so, so did you move the salon because of the opportunity to sort of stretch your legs or? Yes, exactly. I mean, I, you know, Wired was great and I learned a ton writing, you know, news pieces reported, but I wanted to, I want, you know, look, my goal when I was a kid growing up was to be an author when I grew up and, and to, to like write. And so writing, you know, 800 word news pieces is, <laughs> right. is very different is about as far away from long form writing you can get so you know i was like well what's the what's the closest kind of writing that i want to be doing that isn't actually sitting down writing book and it was it was salon that was aspirational to me it's like it's like that's the next step for me as a writer that's why i want yeah. to be doing i want to be writing those kinds of pieces so, did you um, so yeah that's, a, that's why i moved to salon did you want to be a novelist or did you want to be or just an author or did you have any i wanted to be a novelist that? i wanted to be a novelist um you know well, how, and, do you, how do you end up in journalism then well because you know, you get when, you're, when you're, yeah, I mean, look, I was in college and I was getting an English degree, but like, you can't graduate and get a job as an author. Right. <laughs> you, you have to get a job as a writer doing something else. Um, yeah. And hopefully, you know, you can keep working on your fiction and, or go, you know, maybe you go get an MFA or whatever, but you have to work your way up to being able to live off of being a novelist, right? So I just happened to land in, you know, in this interesting period of journalism where there was opportunity to, like, that was really interesting and exciting. And even though it wasn't what I planned to do with my life, I, for eight years, got swept up in it. Um, And then when I did kind of, like, and what happened is it, you know, 9-11 9-11 happened and 2002 rolled around and I was uh, kind of burning out on online online journalism and journalism in general. And I wanted, I realized like, here I am, I'm like closing in on 30 and I haven't started, I haven't written a word of fiction in a really long time. Um, I want to spend some time doing some fiction. And so I took a sabbatical in early 2002 uh, for a month just so I could like, you know, write some, write some short stories. I started taking a short story writing class and uh, through UC extensions and, um, and just, and just got back into like writing some short fiction. And then when I went back to work, I was still, still doing some short fiction writing, but, um, but I kind of had had a taste of what I wanted to be doing. Right. <laughs> and so and that was that. <laughs> by the, yeah, by the end of the year, I was like, you know what? I'm my, first of all, my husband, future husband, uh, at the time boyfriend was moving to Los Angeles. And so I wanted to move down there to be with him. Um, so I was like, you know, I'm quitting my job. I'm going to go freelance. I'm going to freelance for a living. And 
see if I can make a go of doing some fiction. Because if I don't do it now, I'm never going to do it. And, yeah. you know, it was still, it was 2002. There was like, there was a lot of, I, I could make a decent living as a, as a freelance journalist. I was writing a lot for like the New York Times and Vogue and some women's magazines, and some stuff from the Rolling Stone. And so I was able to kind of scrape together a living while I was working part-time on my, on my first novel. And that was, did that for about four five years before I sold, before I sold um, All I Ever Wanted Was Everything. Um, and so we'll get to that in a minute because it, I think, so, like, not, I don't think, I know, even though we haven't talked about this, so much of that time covering all that internet technology underlines a lot of the stuff that you write about in the novels. Um, right. The, it's really interesting because 2002, like after 9-11, there was just a big exodus of people that I worked with and I think a lot of people in that tech news space, 2002, 2003, was sort of that, like, we had been through the boom, we had been through the bust, we had been through this sort of big national tragedy and this sort of reconfiguring of things. And there was, like, a natural leaving point for a lot of folks. And I've mm-hmm. talked about this with a lot of former tech, like, most of us left and never looked back. Like, it was like, right. no, I'm, like, that was, it was both such a unique time that, I don't think can ever be recreated because it was new and you could do whatever you wanted. And every day felt energizing, even if just because it was new, right? Like it was a challenge. Right. Um, right. And then by like 2002, 2003, it started to be like, we're going to go from the diamond Rio to the iPod. And it's like, well, that's just, just a bigger version of the same thing. Right. Like now we're getting into the camera and now comes the lawsuits and like, okay, like I'm now the consolidation. It seemed less interesting. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. And, you know, yeah, I was, I was ready to move on. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I didn't do it, but I've been doing that for like seven, seven, eight years at that point. So. Yeah, I left and I told people like I wrote for Yahoo when I was writing my book, when John and I were doing the book, Yahoo games had just kind of started. So they paid me like, I wrote like one game review a month and complex magazine had a custom publishing arm and they published a magazine for target like back when Target had magazines in them and they paid me a, what, a, $2 a word, $2 a word to write 2000 word game reviews a month. Ridiculous. Wow. Right. So wow. while I wrote the book, I literally did the game reviews on the first day of the month, like uh-huh. made my $4,000. I lived in Texas. A couple guys lived in my house, sent that off, spent 29 <laughs> days working on our book. Right? Like, like shit that absolutely doesn't exist in today's world. <laughs> well, yeah, nope. <laughs> I don't think that rates have improved. In fact, they've gotten a lot worse in the last 15 yeah. years. And like, does anybody even do custom publishing anymore? Yeah. I feel I like, well, yeah, I feel like when I talk about that, people are like, that, okay, old man. Like, it was a thing, I promise you. So you leave, you move to, uh, you move to Los Angeles. This is like 2002, 2003? 2002, end of 2002. So you start working on your first, which, what's the first book? All we ever wanted was everything. Okay. So, and you said that takes four years to write and get. Yeah. It took me about, I think I started it officially in 2003 is when I started writing it. Um, like I fiddled with short fiction for a while and then I decided to launch into writing a novel in 2003. It took me about four years to write it and I sold it in 2007 and it came out in 2008. And so what was that like, right? To, to make that transition both city and from nonfiction journalism into novel writing? Because I'm assuming a lot of the contacts that you would have made in your professional life now suddenly were not helpful. 
Yeah, I mean, look, when when I was going for for fiction, you don't really when you're writing, you don't really need contacts. You just it's all about writing and finding finding people. I found some writing groups down in Los Angeles. I took another UC Extension class um, on writing the novel and just kind of like got my head into this new space. And and in a way, being in a new city where I had less distractions and less friends, and you know, it's like there was the whole there wasn't a whole lot else to do. It was great. It was kind of a good reset for me. Um, and, uh, I found some new writing community slowly, but surely. And then when I did, when I did finally have a a draft of the book to sell and I needed to find an agent, I was able to kind of call on my old contacts who, you know, I was still, I was still freelancing. Um, you know, like I said, I was still freelancing for, for all those years. And, um, a lot of the people who worked for Wired, I was in salon, I was still in touch with. And so, and I, you know, I knew a lot of, I still knew a lot of writer people. Uh, I met new writer friends in Los Angeles as well. And so when I was looking for an agent, I was able to kind of call people up and say like, Hey, who would you recommend I talk to? You know, can you give me an introduction? That kind of thing. Interesting. I would yeah. not have thought that. Cause I know like with our stuff, I know like I know a ton of writers, but most of the writers I know are like you, they're, they're fiction writers. And that process is completely different from what we do in nonfiction. Yeah. Uh, and the agents like, at least the ones that I have targeted by and large are ones that like they only do nonfiction or largely do nonfiction. Um, well, keep in, keep in mind that, you know, I was working for salon and uh, there's a lot of people who worked yes, there who had, yeah. had feet, feet in, in, in different, it was a little bit more of a literary magazine and at the time. And so, yeah, yeah there was people like, you know, the book, we had, we had a whole book section, you know, right. and a lot of, a lot of the people who wrote for it were, were authors, like published authors. So, so the, the network there was was more literary maybe than than your average news publication. Yeah. Just another one of the many better choices you've made in your life than me. <laughs> going through the law. So when do you guys start the um because you have uh I don't I don't know if it's a collective, but like you guys have a writing space down there where like I mean it's not like the grotto in San Francisco, but it's like a smaller version of that. Yeah. It's you know, it's inspired by the grotto in San Francisco. Right. It's you know, um less we we have a a building, not a building. We have a space <laughs> in a, a mid century building that's like right here in, in Las Feliz, um, and you know we have like what, I think five five rooms with a bunch of desk jams in there, and and twenty something twenty four I think writers wow. right now who who share who share the office, and you know you have a desk or a shared desk, and you like come in on your days and and just write. Um, it's very low key. Like the grotto, like you have your office with the door that closes. It's very formal. Ours is a little more ad hoc. Um, you know, like I said, no, there's there's a couple rooms that have two desks, but there's there's like a couple rooms that have four desks and six yeah. desks. So it's just a space to go work. <laughs> That's not your house. Um, but uh, right now, uh, I can't go there. So <laughs> <laughs> when did you guys put that together? It's been going on for a few years. Seven you know? years. Seven years. So after going the first on, book comes. Actually, uh, yeah. After the first, uh, the first two came out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I actually, it kind of had its birth um, 10 years ago. Gotcha. When my friend Erica, who's a screenwriter, I ran into her and she's like, I just, I've been looking for a place to go write. I just had my kid. I need to get out of the house. Like so that I can be away from my baby while I'm writing. And I got this office 
space inside a production company in Las Feliz. They had some spare, they had some spare offices. Do you want to share, do you want to share an office with me? I was like, yes, I want a place to go write. So she and I, you know, got, got a, got, were tucked in the back of this production company. And there was like two or three other little offices of writers that ended up back there. And kind of, we, we ended up with like, I think ultimately like eight, eight or so writers kind of squatting inside this production company that just hadn't too big of an office. But then the production company started to grow and get really successful and they kicked us out. Um, so Riders are the first ones to go everywhere. Yeah, exactly. They were like, we need our desks back. We need our offices back. So that's when we went and found our office space um, and became kind of officially started it in 2000 and 2002. It was 2002. Um, so, and that was when we, you know, kind of formed more officially named ourselves, called it Sweet Eight. So, and, uh, and so, so are you working on this is where we live at that point or is that out? When does that come out? Uh, this is where we live came out in 2000 and 2000, 2000. Yeah. So, okay, so, so I, was- so I wrote, I wrote part of this is where we live, um, while I was in that kind of first ad hoc yeah. space. And I moved to this new space and started writing um, Watch Me Disappear. That's where Watch Watch Me Disappear was written. It was in Sweet Eight. So it's interesting. So um, you know this because this happened, but everybody listening will not. When Watch Me Disappear came out, I was in Indianapolis and I had a writing collective. And we had part of the tour, like we brought Janelle out and did... um, a couple, we did two... Well, one I think you had set up with Carmel and then we did one down at the... um, uh, at the artist or arts collective in the city. Mm-hmm. And it was really weird. Like as you and I were talking, you told me that you get a lot of criticism. For, like, I love, like I love the characters in your, in your stories. And I love the women characters in your story a lot. And you told mm-hmm. me that you get criticized a lot because you write unlikable characters, which was the first time that I had really thought like, Oh, I didn't, I like, I don't experience them as unlikable characters. I don't either. But right. People call them that sometimes, which, you know, but I think, I think that's just because I write characters that are, are flawed and make bad decisions because I think that's interesting. I mean, I'm, I'm interested in characters that do things that I wouldn't do myself. Um, and then for me, the challenge as an author uh, is to make those characters uh, understandable and or empathetic. Like what's interesting to me is not like, is someone likable or not, but if they're doing things that are flawed, do I understand why they're making those bad decisions? Have I, have I, have, you know, as a writer or as a reader, do I, am I invested enough in this character that I, that I get why they're doing what they're doing? And it's interesting to me. That's the thing, right? And I don't like delving into craft a whole lot just because that's only interesting to writers and it's only interesting to a writer when they're dealing with their own story. But I've found um, they're human, right? Like, it mm-hmm. like you sort of get what like as I read, I think um, uh, this is where we live. Oh my god, I, I fucking loathe both of the characters in that. St- I hated them so much, and I like and some of it was because it felt so very much like I knew them from my days at Wire, right? Like I sort of knew right. who those people were, but also that made an interesting story and dynamic, right? Like I can't both mm-hmm. hate them recognize them as people I know and be like, well, this is terrible. I'm like, well, no, no. Right. Like that's, the point is fiction should at least in some way be an author working through something. Right. Exactly. And I, um, and I neither know nor care what you were working through, but it was very clear as I read the book that like you were trying to understand something. 
right? And it, yeah. through these characters. Um, yeah, exactly. And I, you know, it's so it's both, and I don't mean this as a pejorative, it's both a beach read in that I never felt like it was a tome. Any of the books, I've never felt like, ah, uh, I can only read a chapter at a time. Uh, right. So, you know, like they're, they're easy to read, but they are not easy books, right? Like they are complicated and you will have emotional reactions to the characters, which mm-hmm. like, fuck, that's what it's about, right? Like I hate reading books where you, there's four characters and it's a mystery and I'm like, oh, so that person did it, right? And now <laughs> I just got to sort of go through the rest of this to figure out like what the writer's going to do, but the characters are right. Right. I yeah, I mean, I feel like that's 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 the balancing act, right? Story and character, trying to <laughs> trying to keep them, like, yeah, I, I I hear what you're saying. But I feel like you, I don't know if you do you struggle with that because it feels like as I read the characters, I feel like for you, character development's the easiest part. Yeah, you know, I I feel like I feel like character character for me comes first and character informs story. Um, if I am, if I am, whenever I start a book, like I have an idea of the story of what's going to, what it's going to be and the plot and I'll rough out the plot, you know, short outline. But then, um, but then as I get going, what I started spending time on is character and really thinking about character and developing the character. And as the character comes alive, the story starts taking new direction because, you know, character is what causes action, right? Like you can't, you can't, you can't impose behavior on character. Character right. informs behavior. So I have, I always kind of leave enough room in my books for, characters to change the storyline and and the arc of how things are going to go because if i don't <laughs> right. it's going to end up with like a one-dimensional one-dimensional book well and it's to me it's very clear when you i mean that's sort of insider writery baseball but like as i've read all your books i'm like uh, like that's what it feels like to me right like the mm-hmm. characters are the the sort of what is happening is a result of the characters not uh, the characters aren't like stuck into a thing you're trying to make happen, right? Like yeah. that, that's the way they read to me. And also when you told me that you get accused of writing unlikable characters, I'm like, I had to reconsider like my entire dating and relationship life. Cause I was like, Oh no, I love all, <laughs> like I love all of these. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like these are deeply complicated and conflicted people that are doing like amazing things. And, and I've told you this and for everybody that hasn't read, watch me disappear, which I have the keep telling people to read the last page is another one of those times that I fucking hated your guts because the last page of watch me disappear is literally the best last page of a book ever, ever, ever. Wow. And I read a lot (laughs) of books. Yeah. Like I actually go back and just read that last page. I don't know, like every couple months. Wow. Yeah. Thank you. (laughs) Is that so? Is that is anything happening with that one? Um, yeah, I mean, in terms of t- adaptation yeah. into series, um, yeah, there have been some, as they would say in the tech industry, pivots. Um, yeah. I wrote it as a screenplay last year for the uh, film, and uh, long story, but basically, like we lost the director and then we're kind of pivoting now and looking at potentially being a series. I have a producer. Um, and, but you know, it's, it's, it's a long, it's a long, right. it's a long process. <laughs> so nothing, you. nothing concrete, but, uh, it's an, it's, it's, a, it's a project that I'm, that's, it's still alive. So yeah. hopefully, hopefully it'll see the light of day at some point. That one would be 
to me, the greatest six-episode limited miniseries project. Like, I would be there the first night for that. Like, and even as I was reading it, I was like, oh, my God, this is so... And I don't know, you know, I, your husband is a, is he a director, cinematographer? He works in, he works with film, yeah? Well, he was an independent filmmaker, um, director, and uh, now he's works uh, in advertising. So he yeah. directs the commercials and stuff like that. That still counts? That's still film? And yes, like, yes. Uh, oh, absolutely. It does, it does count. Yeah, so. the, um, yeah, the books feel cinematic to me. Like, your stories feel cinematic. Um, yeah, thank you. Uh, so it's not surprising that people are now coming to them. So we just got a couple minutes left because uh, she has a call with uh, her publishers because Janelle. My publishers, yeah, gigantic. Comes out. <laughs> uh, so my book comes out. My book comes out shortly, and everyone's like, "Oh my god, what do we? How do we? What needs to happen?" So what is happening? Like it comes out uh, the fourteenth. It comes out when. Next, uh, so the 21st, 21st. April 21st. Um, what is happening? Well, you know, no book tour, obviously. So right. there's a lot more digital events that are happening. Um, I'm doing some Zoom book readings with bookstores that I was going to be uh, visiting. Um, I'm doing some podcasts with bookstores. I'm doing some in conversation with authors. I'm doing bookstagram cocktail parties. I mean, Everyone's trying to figure it out right now. Well, no one really knows what to do. So, <laughs> a little bit like Wired at nineteen ninety five. Yeah, exactly. It's a kind of a whole. So it's a wild, wild west of, of book marketing out there right now. I've so, been, but you know, the book's still coming out, and it's you know, even though bookstores are closed, the good news is that most of them are are shipping books, and um, you know, also places like Target and Walmart are fortunately sell books. So if you go into buy your groceries there you can also pick up a book yeah and like um, i use bookshop yeah, right like bookshop.org yeah bookshop is great bookshop.org is great i mean as much as everyone talks about supporting independence i also think we've got to support barnes and noble yeah. because they're a great great bookstore i mean and it'd be sad if a lot of communities only have barnes and noble we don't want to like only loo only you know i'm, I'm encouraging people to order from barnes and noble too it's buy some from your indies, buy some from, from bookshop, buy right. some from... Buy 10 copies of Janelle's <laughs> book for, and spread that out across all of the... Uh, if they go I to your tell website... You, I've been, yeah, if they go to websites, they can buy them. I mean, if you go to my website, um, janellebrown.com, I have links to all kinds of places where you can buy the book. But. And do you have your schedule up there as well? Uh, you know, I don't actually. I need... I, it's on my to-do list. <laughs> Um, I, I do need to like, cause everything's, I mean, literally just coming together like now. So, right. cause, I, um, so I need to, I need to get that up on my, on my it's, website. So it's really funny. Like all these businesses that were like, it's too hard to pivot online. Suddenly are like, we figured out our online strategy in four days. Right? <laughs> uh, so it's been interesting to watch like all of this, um, happen. I'm sorry that your amazing book release is in the middle of all this, but I'm so happy for you that all of this Thank is you. happening. This is one Thank of those you. like 20 year overnight successes. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like, and it has been fun to sort of be a, a, an outside observer to you for, you know, two decades because, uh, you know, it won, like I said, you gave legitimacy to the things that I cared about and I did back then. And I know this has been a, passion of yours for a long time and so to see the success happen is just it's fucking amazing it's amazing thank you and thank you so much for supporting me through all these books you've been 
Always. Right there, cheering me on. I really appreciate it. So. Yeah, you need to write them faster because I finished them pretty quickly. <laughs> so you need to do that. All right, you go have a meeting with your publisher. I will find all the places where you're doing stuff and we will promote this out. And um, you guys take care and be safe. Thank you so much. You take care too. All right, bye-bye. All right, bye. Yeah, so there's a little bit of fawning. I make no apologies for that. She's earned every bit of it. Uh, I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I've enjoyed having it with her um, and continuing to have it, and I can't wait for the book to come out. As a reminder, I will be hosting a virtual book club with her, so we'll announce the dates um, in a little bit, but be limited to 15 people. You got to read the book or at least read enough of it that you can come in and have a conversation. It's free. won't cost anything. I will be buying books for uh, five of the 15 people who come in. So if you are interested, you can sign up for my newsletter at thebradking.com. You can also send me an email or tweet me and say, hey, I'm interested, and I will get you the information when it comes out. As always, you can buy any of the books from any of the authors through my bookshop, which is at the website. And if you like what you hear, both tell your friends about it and send it to other book lovers that you have and leave a review. That is how we get found. That is how this show grows. That is how all of this works. I hope that you are doing well. Day 32 has been a little bit weird. Staying inside is feeling normal now, which is odd. So I hope you are all holding up, holding up. I hope that you are washing your hands. I hope that you were wearing your mask. You are keeping social distance. And I look forward to talking to you again. Until then, I will see you around the internet. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.